GrowCFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the GrowCFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got a guest all the way from Salt Lake City in the United States who is on day one of starting his own business. He's the FP&A guy, Paul Barnhurst. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I'm thrilled to be here. And like you said, it's day one. So just kind of excited to be able to visit with you and your community. So day, day one of a brand new business. Paul, tell me something about that. Yeah. So, you know, a few months ago, I started, some people had come to me wanting me to do some content forum and some different things. And I started looking at the numbers Some people came to me some consulting and said, you know, I might be able to actually make a business out of it. I had been doing posting on LinkedIn pretty regularly over the last, you know, few years and very regularly over the last year, started building a following. I'm up to about 11,000 people now. And as those opportunities came, I, you know, at first it was kind of funny. I went to my wife and I said, I think I can make a business out of this. And she looked at me like, you're kidding, right? Like, that ain't happening. And things started to come together. And I decided, you know, hey, let's go ahead and do this. I got this opportunity and that opportunity. And so a few weeks ago, I about a month ago, I gave notice at my job and they came back and said, hey, will you help out a little longer? And I said, okay, fine. And so last Friday was my last day full time. And now I'm doing, you know, a number of different consulting things and starting launching my own podcast on FPA. That will be out in the next couple of weeks. And some other events and things as I start building a business here. So FP&A, Paul, what's from, from your point of view, you're the FP&A guy, what exactly does FP&A cover? Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of different thoughts on that, but I think there's a few core things it should always cover. So the first is financial planning, budgeting, right? Forecasting. It's helping the build business build their plan. I think that includes both the the annual budget, which is what most companies have, rolling forecasts, and then long-range planning, helping with that strategic planning. So I think that's the first thing you see with FP&A. The next is, that's very common, is management reporting. You know, I, it used to be that that was almost the biggest thing, as I used to say, it was FP&R, it was planning and reporting. And today, it's really FP&A. It's that planning, there's the reporting, there's the analysis, that decision support, helping the business make you know, intelligent decisions and adding value. And then the, the next piece, which I think has been you know, really underutilized over the last few years, but is really starting to grow is the business partnering side. You know, FP&A, it used to be you spent all day in a spreadsheet. You built your model, you did your plan, you did your variance commentary. Today, it's really sitting down with the business and helping them figure out how they get where they need and to make sure that they meet the financial needs of the company, you know, the strategy and the, and the numbers. And so really, I think those are the areas of FP&A. It's that decision support, the planning and budgeting, it's the analysis and the management reporting. Mm. So it, it is a very big area and there's a it, lot of skills you need to bring together into that. Agreed. Yes, it is. It is. It's a definitely an area that's been growing a lot. Yeah. So as, as the FP&A guy, as, a, as an independent business, which of those areas do you think you're going to be working in most? Yeah. So, you know, a few things, you know, kind of in the, uh, in the near term, it'll be some consulting with different, you know, companies, helping them with their financial planning. And then also some uh, Excel training 
I've done some for corporations, you know, anyone that does FP&A and anyone works in finance, you have to know Excel. And then over time, I'll be launching some of my own courses and building out some additional, you know, content to assist people around, you know, forecasting, budgeting, uh, planning tools, and that type of area. So a little bit, a little bit on the soft skills and a fair amount on the technical side. Yeah. So Excel, running training courses in Excel, but are spreadsheets really still the best way of doing things? Depends on what you're doing. I would say, you know, companies today, after you hit a certain size, you need a planning tool. You need the collaboration benefit, the workflow benefit, the integration. If you're doing ad hoc analysis, you're building, uh, you know, a three statement model. Excel is still a great tool. I mean, the things Excel has done over the last decade to completely change the product that most people don't know about is pretty amazing. I mean, they've revolutionized it over the last few years compared to where it was 10 years ago. It's a different product today. Yeah. So you're, you're looking at planning tools. What, who, who are the players in that planning tool market these days? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think so. There's the traditional kind of older players that most people would recognize Oracle, S Base, um, Hyperion, some of those first generation. Then came along what I'd call centered second generation, which were kind of the first cloud tools. And that would be first one of those is kind of adaptive. You have JDocs, OneStream, Anaplan, which is a business planning tool. And now what you've seen in the last few years is what I call third generation tools. They're easier to implement. They're a little more agile. The prices come down substantially. And those are companies such, and you know, I'm obviously not going to name all of them, but Pigment, um, DataRels, Drav, Cube, Mosaic. I mean, we're working on a market guide right now. And originally we started a list with nearly 45 potential vendors that we had written down that we would, you know, that could be potentially classified as third generation that we researched. Wow. 45. So tell me a little bit more about that guide, Paul. That's, that sounds like a, an interesting and useful document. Yeah, we're, we're really excited. It's something we're hoping, you know, to have out here in the next few months. I'm working with the Business Partnering Institute, Anders Lou Lindbergh and uh, Waterborne out of Spain. And what we're doing is we're looking at these third generation tools and we're going to go in and do an assessment on them and come out with a, a guide that provides what are some of those tools that are out there? You know, what are some things to think about in using those tools? And so we'll probably cover, you know, 10 to, I'm guessing it'll probably be 10 to 12 vendors, but we're still working through the exact number and how many we'll, you know, mm. we'll be able to cover realistically. Yeah. I know from, from my day in that sort of field and that was probably just working with that first generation system i remember working with hyperion a long long time ago with a, a potential mm -hmm. client that we we're jointly going to approach i was back in my days in pwc consulting so that's a long time ago sure but you know i i remember thinking that well actually there's there's no best in class it all depends if you're choosing a planning tool what are your criteria? What do you want? Is that, would you say that's still the case that there's no real, real leader in there that you recommend every time? Yeah, definitely. I would agree. I mean, there's different strengths to each of the tools. What you're seeing, you know, is a couple things. You're definitely seeing more and more tools trying to be what we call XPNA. I don't know if you've heard that term. It was coined by Gartner called extended planning and analysis. So trying to allow you to do your operational and financial planning in the same tool. 
Yeah. And so Anaplan was kind of the first big one to do that. Now, most of, most of your, you know, first and second generation allow some operational planning, integrating your headcount, integrating some of your cells, even a lot of your third generation. So that's the first thing I think is becoming kind of a standard. The second is they have to be able to handle scenario planning and three statement modeling well. But beyond that, you see a lot of different approaches taken. You see tools such as Vena, Cube, Data Roused, Power Excel that really focus on keeping you in Excel. You know, they take different approaches, but the, you know, they're heavily using Excel. And you have others that completely try to limit using Excel and it kind of everything in between. You know, you have ones that focus very much on the collaboration, others that are focused very much on, you know, helping you with managing a lot of products. Like there's one that, you know, started growing a little bit. It's out of Croatia called Farseer you know, that's built a pretty good engine and they really focus on, you know, pharmaceuticals and companies that have lots of products, a little bit of that demand planning in addition to FP&A. So there's definitely still no best in class. There's, you know, some tools are better than others, but there's a number of different approaches, you know, different amounts of artificial intelligence being used. And it's really, it comes back to process and what makes sense for a company. And as, you know, as we were talking earlier, mentioned knowing what measurements they need knowing what they need out of a tool, what they want their process to be, and then going and picking something that's going to work for them and, you know, implementing it. But without having a good understanding up front, a tool isn't going to solve the problems. Yeah, that's that, that's an interesting one. I, I can think of a couple of client scenarios back in the old days. When, oh, we've bought this dashboarding tool. That's going to sort all our measurement issues. And then they come back a m- month or two later and think, well, we thought it was going to solve all our measurement issues, but we haven't got a clue how to populate it with anything that's meaningful. So that I'm guessing is still the problem, even when you've got those tools. So what, what sort of process would you potentially take a client through that's that yeah. looking to put a dashboard in place? So I think, you know, the first thing you have to do, in fact, I'm working, I'm working with a client right now on that. We just had a meeting with their uh, president and their, their CFO. And, you know, we start talking about, okay, what do you want to measure? What's important? And so we went through, they've done an, a bunch of acquisitions. And we kind of went through each business and said, okay, what are the key metrics? What are the drivers that you need to understand to know the health of the company? Mm-hmm. And we started by listing them all just on a, you know, just a Word document, had about a page and a half between the seven and eight companies of what those, you know, three to five key things were for each company. Then the next step is, okay, where can we get that data source? what is required to automate it, you know, what kind of time frame it will take and just building out from there. So I think it's first having an understanding of what really are your key metrics? What are those driving? And they tend to be operational, right? Financial are usually after the fact. They're getting better, but they're not leading indicators. Yeah. So what are really the leading indicators that you need to understand that business? Those are the first things you want to be measuring, whether that be leads on your website, whether that, you know, the backlog of, you know, customer orders, you know, it's going to vary a lot depending on the business could be SaaS and what's your, you know, cost to acquire. You want to know that, you know, regularly. And so there's just some key metrics that every business should always be, you know, keeping an eye on. Yeah. I think that's an interesting one, Paul, and monetary measurements. And certainly I I remember learning a long time ago that chances are if it had a pound sign or a dollar sign, at the front of it, it was not a leading indicator. It was a lagging indicator. 
No, and I, I I tend to agree with you. That's that's often true. You know, I think it's things like orders, it's things like customer engagement. You know, sometimes even knowing your customer scores can be a leading indicator of a problem, even if they come after the order, right? Those are things to tell you that okay, those dollar signs are probably going down if I have low customer engagement. Things like that. Yeah, yeah. Thing is, by the time the dollar sign goes down, it's too late to do something about it. If you see customer engagement going down, well, you can do something pretty quick to start getting it back in the right direction. When you see the when you see the financials lag, when you see them start to poor perform poorly, it takes a long time to fix that. You you've waited too long if that's what you're using as your indicator to fix your business. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're you're approaching this as a as a finance guy. And here we find ourselves talking about non-financial measures. Now, everybody in the business has access to data. Everybody in the business will be measuring stuff. Where do you think finance's role is in terms of all this non-financial measurement? You know, that, that's a great question. And there's, there's still a lot of debate on that. Like, you know, where does the analytics department sit? Should it sit in finance? Should it sit outside finance? You know, and the company I'm just uh, leaving, I'm still helping out a little bit, but no longer full-time with, we just barely moved analytics into finance. I think finance is a great place to have it because it serves as kind of a Switzerland or a neutral and that Really, the ideal way of planning is the very close connection between your FP&A and your operational people. Your finance people should understand those operational metrics and should focus on extended planning and analysis. I'm going to guess you've been part of it, Kevin. I think we all have where you build a plan and the business is hardly involved. Yeah. You know, and you get all done and the business is like, this isn't my plan. I didn't sign up to this. And they're like, how'd you come up with that number? That doesn't tie to the the sales numbers and the quotas we have. And well, I would need more you know, people to meet those rollout requirements or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's really changing is FP&A starting to own more and more of that a process and help align the business and bring that analytic skills, that finance perspective as a business partner with the business knowledge. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for the disciplines that are in finance of doing things to that regular drumbeat of, uh, of the monthly report, the quarterly report, whatever it is, and that need to reconcile everything to each other. And I can think back to times when I was, I was a business accountant in mm-hmm. my business unit, and you'd go and you'd present the monthly figures. And then shortly after I presented the, the finances, the sales team would present their numbers and somebody would start scratching their head when, oh, how come the sales team are saying the sales for last month are different to the finance team? Uh, different number, it might have only been out by well, less than a percent, but they reported a different number. So rather than the overall message of where sales going and whatever, the meeting descends into some disarray about why are the numbers different? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Been there, done that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, that, that's one reason why I think, I personally think that finance should run analytics because mm-hmm. at least it means that whatever analytics you're, you're putting out should 
at least tie back to the accounts and should have been thought about in some logical and rational way as to given what we know about the finance of the business is this number right yep and and i tend to agree with you because yeah we've we've all been there we've all where you spend a an hour in a meeting looking at different numbers because none of them are the exact same even though they're all close instead of discussing the health of the business and what's important and making you know decisions that can help move the business forward it becomes an exercise in futility of why Joe had 2 million and Peter had 2.01 million. Right. And so having one source of truth, you know, an analytics team that can disseminate that information is important. And I I tend to agree. I think finance is a good natural fit for it. I think it, you know, it can be done other ways, but I tend to think that's a great fit. And we're seeing more and more, you know, CFOs have to be financially, not financially, analytically savvy right? Understanding data analytics, taking over that process, starting to own more data. And it's, you know, it's a real challenge and companies are constantly trying to find ways to, to manage that so that people can self-serve themselves and everybody's working off the same data versus everybody having a slightly different data set. Yeah. I think it's, it's fundamental. Yeah. That's it. One source of the truth. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the project that I remember getting into all sorts of problems with multiple versions of the truth. I, I, for when the, the Olympics came to London back in 2012, mm-hmm. um, I was seconded to the, the Olympic Games for, for a year from my consultancy firm. And the key thing that I had to put in place were the, the reporting me- me- mechanisms that allowed us to to satisfy all of the promises that we'd made in the bid to, to win the games in the first place and of course on top of what had been promised to the international olympic committee the the lord mayor of london had promised a load more things to the local community for local jobs and constantly the the press were asking for numbers um it was an immensely complicated uh scenario with the we were in the construction phase and there were main contractors or subcontractors there were subcontractors to the subcontractors and now you scratch your head and thought how many jobs have we actually created on the olympic park how on earth do we count them and that one version of the truth became incredibly important because this this data set was going well, to the front page of of national newspapers yeah no, that, that's a great example. And, you know, sometimes it starts with one, just defining what the data sets are going to be and yeah. aligning on that. Because, you know, one version of the truth, as we often say, there really isn't necessarily kind of, you know, one version of the truth. Often you can get slightly different data and you can support both of it and it can both mm-hmm. be right. But you have to agree how you're going to count things, how you're going to treat them. And all aligned that this is this is the source we're going to use. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that I use an example in the classroom if I'm teaching any of this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I'll say to folk around there, "What miles to the gallon does your car do?" Mm-hmm. And they'll all come up with 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 different figures, and then you start saying, "Well, I can take the same car, so it must have identical miles to the gallon." But, okay, you two have got the same car. So how come you're giving me different answers? And you find it's because they've got different definitions of what they're measuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, well, one saying, well, what does it do at 30 miles an hour? The other saying, what does it do at 70 miles an hour? Yep. 
And do you live in a place that has a lot of hills? Yeah. Or do you live in a flat area? Are you mostly city driving? Free, right? There's so many different yeah. ways you can answer you that question. Absolute clarity on the definition of what it is you're measuring. Yeah, exactly. But it's a, it's a fascinating field, Paul. So day one as FP&A guy. What do you think day 100 as the FP&A guy is going to look like? Yeah, it's a, you know, that's a great question. You know, by day 100, I hope to be starting to get comfortable in my podcast and have that up and you know going. We should see that in April. I will have done some kind of webinars and have my website up and hoping to kind of start to build some more, more of my consulting and a little bit more of my training. So I think you know, I'll be a little more comfortable and starting to grow things and hopefully kind of settling into how it's going to, how it's all going to work, you know, still kind of figuring things out as I go. But I'm the one thing I'm certain of is some things will have changed from where I'm at today. Yeah. And not everything will go as planned. <laughs> but it's a field that's changing very rapidly itself. What do you, what do you think the biggest things are going to be on the horizon for, for FPNA going forward? Yeah. So I would, you know, I think there's two or three of the things I think are the biggest. The first is business partnering is going to become much more important. It's not enough to just know the financials. You have to understand the business. And the only way you can do that is by spending time with the business. I think finance people are going to need to spend more time with customers and going out there. So I think that's one thing. I think the second, and we saw this accelerated substantially during COVID, is really scenario modeling and planning. And with that is not just the P&L, but understanding cash flow. A lot of companies have started kind of neglecting cash flow. And when you know, March 2020 or February, January, depending on where in the world you were hit, all of a sudden cash flow was all that mattered. It's like, can we survive the fact that everybody's stuck in their house and they can't buy my product right now? What do I do? Yeah. And so, you know, that really changed that scenario modeling. And then I just think data is going to continue to play an outsized role. You know, some people feel like they have to have data scientists in FPNA. Whether you have a data scientist in it or somewhere in the company, you have to have a general understanding of data and data science and what it is. And, you know, even myself, I'm reading right now a book by Jordan Goldmeyer uh, about becoming a data head just to, you know, make sure I keep myself up on those, on those data skills and how to think about data and what the, what the trends are. Yeah. Certainly data is then the biggest change that I've seen in this whole area since first getting involved. You know, back in the day when we were putting balanced scorecards together in, in Coopers, we'd, we'd come up with a, what should we be measuring? Right Now that we've worked out what we should be measuring, where's the data coming from? It's flipped right around to the opposite problem that says, oh, there is now so much data, which bits of it do we actually need to look at? Totally agree. I'm not, so you've, not sure if you've seen it, but I've seen it bouncing around the internet, especially LinkedIn a lot. There's this graph with like 50 different KPI metrics that are being measured. And then mm -hmm. you see these two people and you see one down in the bottom that's going down, you know, just an arrow, like revenue going down a red arrow. And the one guy's, what's that? He goes, that is uh, over time, the understanding of this dashboard, you know, because they're just measuring too many metrics. Everybody's yeah. looking at it like, okay, what does this tell me? What do I take away from this? Yeah. That's it. And you can, have a, you can have a fantastic time playing about in Google Analytics, finding out who's visited your website from what country, wherever. And I, I've found before, I've spent half a day in there. And I've, <laughs> I've done seen it. a lot of data, but has it actually told me anything useful about the business? No. 
No, that's exactly right. I've looked a lot at, oh, they come from this country or that country and it's kind of cool. And you start going down the rabbit hole and you get all done. And you're like, okay, what do I actually do with this? Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's a fascinating field, Paul. And seriously, I wish you all the best with the business as it goes forward. Great to have spoken to you on, on day one. It's going to be probably two or three weeks beyond day one when folk are actually listening to this, but uh, all the best. And Thank you for joining me on this week's Grow CFO show. Thank you for having me, Kevin. It's uh, you know, it's my pleasure and I'm excited to see, you know, the things that Grow CFO continues to do and just really enjoyed being on the podcast and I'm looking forward to, you know, hopefully continuing to provide value to the FPNA community as we move forward and become those strategic business partners that the business really needs. Yeah. Paul, thank you again. Mm-hmm.